Hello friends and welcome back to It's All Relative, the show that explores life's issues through a generational lens, helping us understand how we are evolving as consumers, workers and citizens. Each episode I shall be tackling a juicy question that I want answered by interviewing experts, voices and practitioners along the way to unravel the complex answer. Today we are discussing the creator economy. In an age when we all see ourselves as creators, what's its purpose, what's its form and ultimately what's its future? With me to discuss this issue is my my friend and social content creator Sam Barcroft, founder of Barcroft Media. Way back in 2003, Sam founded Barcroft Media as an alternative agency dedicated to telling weird and unusual stories. It soon became one of the top 10 most viewed channels on YouTube, selling programs to the likes of Netflix and Channel 4. Sam sold the company in 2019 and now dedicates his time to helping creators and entrepreneurs build their content, platforms and businesses through his Creativeville mentoring scheme. Sam, welcome to It's All Relative. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to it. I want to first start with you taking us back to 2003, because I think, although technically it was only 20 years ago, it's in a business sense, a world away. So take us back to those early years of being a founder of Barcroft Media, the environment, the opportunities back then. What was the story and what factors do you think made it possible for you to succeed as an alternative media agency? It was a very different time. 2003 was really seeing the rise of multi-channel television and the fall of newspapers. At that stage, I think American television hit its peak at 1999 with 50 million people tuning in for a single episode of Third Rock from the Sun and newspapers slightly post-peak, but still doing pretty well in the UK, especially. But what was really happening with newspapers was they couldn't afford to have the huge teams of staff journalists and photographers that they'd once enjoyed. And I was an executive at the Daily Mail in 2000. And what the editors were desperate for every day was content that set them apart from their peers. So they wanted a different front page from everybody else because they realized that in a highly competitive world of UK national newspapers, they had to stand out and be unique. I realized that my opportunity was to go out into the world and figure that out. So I left the mail in 2000 and went off to be a freelance photo journalist. It was really fun. Learned a lot about how challenging it was to do genuine shoe leather journalism and making things happen. I came home from those journeys realizing that I could cover the boring jobs that newspapers wanted me to do. So instead of getting 150 quid a day from selling my hourly rate, I could actually go off and create a feature that I could then sell for five grand. So I started my own business, both providing my services as a photographer with those of other photographers and coming up with brilliant exclusives that I could sell for loads of money, which was fantastic. And that grew into a significant business that was providing lots of exclusives to a broad range of newspapers. After a while, we realized that video and television would make sense in that mix because we were sending teams off around the world at a time when newspapers couldn't really afford to anymore. We really figured out how to serve a failing industry in ways that would cost less money and have more impact, which is the definition of disruptive product, really. I love that. How did that develop into Barcroft Media on YouTube? The Mail Online came to us and said, we want video for our website because the sales teams want to sell advertising on video, which sounded really exciting. So I went out and borrowed 50 grand from some kind of London business incubator grant type scheme and bought some cameras, hired some people. We went out and started filming movie premieres and breaking news stories and then transmitting it around the newspaper websites to provide video. And it was a massive failure. The reason it was a massive failure was twofold. 
unfold in retrospect. Number one, it was almost impossible at that time in 2005 to transmit a video without having ISDN lines or satellites. Number two, it was pre-iPhone. If you wanted to watch a video on a website, you had to download something like RealPlayer and watch it on a standalone website on your crap dial-up modem, which meant you could never really watch it anyway. So they could try and sell all the advertising they wanted, but they didn't really have a video player that would make sense. So we shut up shop. And we basically went back to selling words and pictures. Luckily, at the same time, we kind of realized that we kept getting these phone calls from people saying, oh, I love that front page of today's Guardian. And this would be like production company A or B, who obviously had seen this great story that would make a brilliant documentary. And they were just trying to get hold of the people involved really quickly. And after a while, we realized that we might have got a few grand for producing that story and syndicating it around the world, but they were going to get 200 grand from making the documentary. We partnered up with a production company called Zigzag and we brought them our stories and they pitched them before they went into the newspaper. The commissioners that were used to getting a pitch a week after something had been in the newspaper started to get the pitch the day before it went in the newspaper, which they found really novel and exciting. We skipped video, we went straight to co-producing television and then the iPhone showed up and YouTube existed. And so eventually we started, I think in 2008, uploading a few of our ideas to YouTube. They were terrible, but I'm a great believer that if you go out there and you start doing it, you learn much more quickly than talking about it. We just put it out there. We did a video and it went viral. All of a sudden after a while, I think probably about a month later, we got a check for a couple of grand from YouTube and we're like, hold on a minute. We sold that to a newspaper. It went well in Germany. It went on a German TV show and made us our money back. And we did really well out of the story. But all of a sudden now we've got this business to consumer opportunity. What a brilliant thing. We trod carefully and we made sure we didn't put anything on YouTube that was ahead of our customers when they wanted to publish first. But slowly we started to go from putting up one video every few weeks that felt like the hardest thing to do in the world to putting up a video every few days. In 2013, we committed to making one original documentary a day for every weekday. We would go and uncover these kind of slightly surprising, shocking stories that had a kind of human angle to them. And then we'd cover them like straight news. So we didn't play them up. We didn't take the piss. And they did amazingly well. Towards the end of 2013, we were earning proper money every month. By about end of 2014, beginning of 2015, we hit number one above ABC, CNN, BBC and everybody because we were consistently putting out proper news content that was aimed at a younger audience that loved things were unusual or surprising or shocking and it resonated incredibly well. What's brilliant about that story and thank you for going into such detail because I think it highlights the challenge for anyone to be a creator is to stick to the central tenets of human interest, emotion, great visuals, high quality product but equally you rode the right waves at the right time. Zooming forward into the 2020s, the creator landscape looks very different. And you have a generation that has grown up with a smartphone in their pocket since they were 13, who are now so au fait with short form video, who are creators, and that's a core part of their identity as much as their identity is as consumers. If we reach that saturation point in the creator economy, 
I think where we're at is in a huge oversupply. So when we started our business on YouTube, anything that was half decent, we got a million views within a few hours because there was lots of viewers and very little good content. Now we've got even more viewers, probably 2 billion a day on YouTube, maybe a bit more, which is a remarkable number. It's a quarter of the world's population tuning in every day to YouTube. But there are 37 million channels putting up something new pretty much every day. It's just far too much for anybody to ever be across it all. You can only be across an absolutely tiny percentage of it. Dominating on social media is about getting involved in that platform at a time where they're giving away viewers, where they're basically giving you audience, because that's the deal you do with social media. You create original content for them for nothing, give it to them for free, and they supply you with audience. We've got to a position where they can't supply you with that much audience because there's just so many people on the supply side for them to look after. It's really difficult now to have a significant impact in the creator economy if you're trying to reach audience at scale. And yet you've got that dichotomy because you've got that generation who all want to be influencers, but only 4% of creators make more than 100k a year. Being a creator, Eliza, is a crap job. You're trying to do it all yourself. You don't get anybody to bounce off most of the time unless you're in a duo. Therefore, you are shouting into the void 90% of the time, which creatively is known to be a difficult way to make good quality content. You are hoping that the platforms that you're uploading to are going to offer you enough audience for you to be able to either A, benefit from selling advertising on those channels via any of the programs that do that, or B, convince brands to give you money to collab with you so that you can advertise in your video for those brands to give you some money. It's tough because you're coming up with the ideas, you're shooting it yourself, you're negotiating all the deals, you're having to edit it yourself or hand it over to somebody else. It's not fun. It becomes very tiring and really hard after a while. The truth is that there's only ever a tiny sliver of the social media population that have significant global audience. And I think what we're now getting to is a kind of second phase of the creator economy where you've got your Hollywood superstars, the Mr. Beasts of this world, or your Charlie D'Amelio's on TikTok, who've got a big audience and who will get progressively more audience for a while until they fall away. Because those platforms and the algorithm love famous personalities. They know that people watch far longer if they suggest videos of the most famous personalities. So they will always offer up the most likely video to do well because they're powered by AI. And AI essentially always offers up the next best idea. YouTube's been controlled by DeepMind in terms of its discovery engines for years and years now. And therefore, what we're getting to now is new creators have to be niche. So they have to start with something that only they can be really good at. And people can build really good businesses out of that. But it's not the same as trying to be the next Mr. Beast and reach 30 million people with every video. So we're at the end of an era, would you say, that probably was started in the 2010s? And that new era being that niche influencer, educator, creator economy. And how does that work? What's the logistics of that? What's the strategy behind that? And what's the revenue model for that? It's essentially the same as the old book publishing or magazine marketplace. So you can have a People Weekly that sells 2 million copies a week in the US and make absolute fortune because lots and lots of people like it and everybody buys it. Or an ITV1 TV model in the UK where you're getting millions of people tune in every night. But they're old school brands that have built audience over many years. And the truth is same for the influencers. So Mr. Beast, who now has 100 million plus subscribers, he's always going to get some decent 
decent views on his videos as long as he kind of stays sharp. But now if you're starting a TV channel, you're going to be like GB News and get hardly any viewers any night. It's just not going to work economically. So what you have to do is pivot your model to starting something that's particularly niche and building up a what I would call a hobbyist style approach to it. In the magazine market, there are magazines like Psychology Today that do very, very well that most of us would have never heard of or thought of. But for people who really love that subject area, they're really willing to pay 10 or a month subscription for that magazine. And they're probably going to spend money every time they buy that magazine on something that's being advertised in it. The influencers of today usually do that via Patreon, where they ask people to subscribe to their YouTube channels and offer gifts in return for the content. They do it by having newsletters like Substack and also by allying with brands. So I did a piece on the Creativeville blog about what you need to do to be an influencer these days. And I talked about being a aquarium enthusiast. If you just love tropical fish, you can go on YouTube and find at least three brilliant bloggers that take you through every aspect of buying your first tank. Do I go for guppies or do I go for goldfish? And if you make aquariums, those influencers are the very best people in the world to represent your product and to sell it. You're not going to put your aquarium ad on ITV1. I did Ali Abdal's YouTube Academy course two years ago. And one of the things that struck me was the obscurity of some of the stuff that people were doing. So it was about 250 people on the course and it ranged from like window cleaners in Canada to stand-up comedians in Blackpool. And it was such an amazing range of niche interests, subjects, passions, expertise. You finding that niche and then growing that community out of the basis that someone somewhere will be interested in that thing. But you're also talking there about the fragmentation of mass culture. And what we've seen over the last 10 years is like mass internet culture like you say the Mr Beast they are the superstars they are the elite somewhat now untouchable from any technological shift or even any closing down of or decline of certain platforms a bit like in Hollywood there were those that made the transition from silence to talkies and those that didn't is it going back to the way the internet first sort of envisaged which is really a series of fragmented communities the hard thing is for people to say, I want to be an influencer, so I want to reach millions of people because that's what's going to work. That's not on offer. It will happen. People will cut through. They'll probably come from niche starting points and then become very famous. So Mr. Beast is not going to be the best YouTuber and the best social media person of all time in five years' time. Somebody else will come along. So he will still remain important and clever, and he's built a big business around himself now. He's got a development team who just come up with all these ideas for him now. So he's industrialized his channel and really his channel is now like a broadcaster it's not just about him as talent they make high quality tv shows he said on the joe rogan podcast that he spent 4.2 million dollars of his own money on a single episode of his youtube channel they're outspending tv networks in terms of the quality and the input of production that they have now they are our new broadcasters instead of mtv think mr beast that's going to be hard to start afresh but mr beast uploaded videos for 10 years when nobody gave a monkeys Every day he was uploading, every day he was learning. So it was a very long tail. Is there also a sense of there's too many platforms now using disruption of digital marketing, the growth of micro-influencers, the sort of question mark that hangs over TikTok? Are we seeing also that these platforms that have generated these communities, which, by the way, the influencers don't own and have very little control over, are, have reached some kind of turning point? And actually the model of Substack, where you do have 
a bit more control over your community and you do have entry into people's inbox and it's not the visual, it's the written word, that perhaps is a signpost that, again, there's different things happening and creators need to sort of almost choose their path. Possibly. I mean, everybody's going to figure it out. I think if you just keep going, you try different things. I know it sounds boring, but you will figure out that nobody likes you on Twitter, but people like you on Instagram. You'll just concentrate on Instagram more. What we've seen with the social media platforms is they've become generational pots of audience rather than anything else. I was at a talk with the CEO of TikTok last week, and he said the main difference between them and everybody else was they were content first and not social first. He said that, and I'm paraphrasing, their focus was on giving people the entertainment they'd love to watch rather than connecting them with one of their friends. And he felt that Facebook was about the social graph. It wasn't about the content. And that TikTok started with the idea of let's show somebody the most entertaining video that they want to watch right now. So it was a different fundamental philosophical starting point. The irony of all ironies is that people are nicer on TikTok than they are on Facebook and possibly Instagram. Well, the thing is, is TikTok's in a post-fake news generation. What didn't really exist seven years ago, and it started from a music app. Facebook came from a place of connecting people, and they realized that when people had a row, it did much more for their engagement numbers than when they were nice to each other. And we've seen this from whistleblowers. They decided to make things that upset people much more visible in your feed than things that made people happy. They used conflict as their way of making things happen. You could argue that TikTok uses joy to make people share things and get people excited. It's a different, very strong emotion. I'm not a massive fan of TikTok. Why aren't you a fan of TikTok? I don't think it benefits creators particularly much. I think because its philosophy is how do we please the person that's watching, it therefore just selects whichever video it thinks or its AI thinks is going to be the most likely to keep that user happy by showing it next, which means that you don't build affinity with individual creators. Whereas on YouTube, you subscribe to creators or you subscribe to brands so that you don't miss an episode that they make. And if you're a brand or a publisher or a creator wanting to build an audience, you want some brand recognition and you want them to be coming back for you because otherwise it's very difficult to go off to an advertiser or a partner and say, hey, you should be spending money with me because I can bring product awareness. There were some great reports from the last VidCon, which is traditionally the big show every year in Anaheim where all the creator economy comes together to discuss everything, where they had all these famous TikTokers or people that have built huge followings on TikTok show up to do public appearances and nobody turned up because on TikTok, people don't really know who you are. They just know the dance or they know the video. Do you remember like back in the sort of 2015, 16, 17, there were all those moments in shopping malls where like YouTubers would turn up and everyone under 20 were like, oh my God, it's that person. And all their parents would be totally bemused and have no idea who this person was until they eventually went on Strictly. It's a very different relationship, as your anecdote alluded to, with TikTokers. There's not that connection. And that works so well for TikTok because it's not Mr. Beast. A lot of people go to YouTube just to watch one thing or just to use it as a search engine to find that video about how to unclog the dishwasher. People go to TikTok to be entertained by TikTok type videos. My friend, she's actually my colleague, but I call her my friend because she's also my friend. She was saying, I go to TikTok because it gives me the information at the speed that I want it. I don't go to YouTube for even like cooking or exercise because they take about five minutes preamble. There's a kind of slowness to it that I don't need when I'm wanting the information quickly. 
There's a slowness that I enjoy when I want to sit down and watch something and luxuriate and invest time in that. But when I want quick information, I go to TikTok. And that's probably indicative of the way the brain develops and the neuroplasticity of the brain, because the brain likes things to be simple and easy. And if it gets into a rhythm of liking 60 second long videos, then you've got to find something that takes five minutes, boring as hell. It's really difficult to go up that attention span. It's quite easy to shorten it because when we're bored, we skip out of things, don't we? When we're feeling a bit fed up or don't like something, we quit it. It's very hard for me to watch a three hour long movie now. I could imagine that will be harder and harder to keep people watching very long form stuff. And yet the antidote to that is the rise of podcasts. People will listen to hour long podcasts quite often because they're doing other things at the same time and also streaming. Somebody talking in your ear like a podcast is a whole different experience from holding a phone in front of your face and being stimulated with sound and vision at the same time. You can think while you're listening to a podcast. You can ponder a bit like reading a book. You've got more brain space to interpret what you're hearing and then think what you think about it when you listen to a podcast than you do if you're watching a very high-paced TikTok. TikTok is basically a massive lean-back experience. You don't have to do anything. All you have to do is scroll, maybe tap once to like something. It's the easiest experience of all time. My 12-year-old boy is the laziest git in the world when he's got TikTok in front of him because all he has to do is that. That versus reading a book. What a pain in the butt reading a book. You've got to put loads of effort and energy, burn calories reading a book. It's a pain. I'm not a massive fan because I don't think it builds sustainable businesses. It's good that it's not too hateful, but there is still a lot of hate on there. And my kids tell me they find it toxic. When you've got teenagers saying to you, that platform, I don't go on it too much because it's too toxic. I don't feel that's great for the world either. And I actually believe that the Substack style models will evolve and evolve and become absolutely the mainstay of the next generation of creators. And what do you mean by that? People that really want to entertain or inform or educate others for a living are going to find new models that are sustainable that will help them pay their rent. That might be if they write in first position to be on Substack. If they are a fashion designer, it might be in the metaverse. If they're into property, it could be selling virtual land. People are going to find ways to get a return on their investment of time, energy and creative output. And I feel like where there's only been three or four of those platforms really to have an impact over the last 10 years, we're going to have dozens and dozens of them. And it will be horses for courses. Fragmentation will continue over the next 20 years because we've just got too many people that have too personalised their life experience now for it to go any other way, I believe. What's your predictions for the metaverse? It's your digital universe. I think other people like to define it as a 3D space where you can exist digitally. But I believe that we'll all understand that the two don't really make any difference because if you're interacting digitally, I think you're already in a different universe anyway. I think there'll be a more clear understanding of the difference in analog life, which is taking the dog for a walk or going to the theater and digital life, which is staring at a phone. And I think it's as simple as that. And so there are these opportunities to double down on the digital interactivity of things. But the internet was such a generational shift in the ability to communicate globally in real time that the metaverse for me doesn't seem like that kind of paradigm shift. For me, it's kind of a 0.5 shift, not a one level shift. I think everybody wants another internet because of the huge change to the globe that the internet created. 
I don't believe the metaverse or Web3 are at the same level of human evolutionary change as the internet was, as the printing press was, as the radio was. I think the internet's the last one of those we've had. What about the idea of creating our own bots that can sing our songs, that can demonstrate our gardening skills in the digital universe? If you're a major artist, even over the last 500 years, other people have done your paintings for you. There's a great debate still ongoing about whether Shakespeare actually wrote a lot of his plays. We've had generations of creators who've expanded into teams. So it doesn't really bother me that you might have an assistant that plays you to other people. It's a small step evolution from what we've already got. You might have an autoresponder on your email saying, hey guys, I'm away for a week, leave a message. What's the difference between that and somebody who's a chatbot who knows a few of your traits just doing the same thing? I think we'll get to understand the difference between AI and humans. And I think we'll start to realize that AIs are essentially like a brilliant assistant who can sort out the basic practical mundane things that we have done with all technology for all time. I was interviewing a 13-year-old in Brussels a couple of months ago. And one of the things that he said to me, which is quite striking, he said, I tried VR, didn't like it. And the reason I didn't like it was because I couldn't do other things at the same time. So when I'm on my phone, I like to be eating. I like to be on the toilet. I like to be watching TV. I like to be doing that and something else. And what he didn't like about VR was that he was almost having to concentrate on just one thing. Maybe it hasn't been developed as a technological experience to that point where you're getting all those buzzes in the same way as you are from a phone and a telly and a book at the same time or whatever it might be. I think what will be interesting is when we get holodeck experiences that feel significant. Technology is not very far away from that. The idea you can step into a room like they used to on the Starship Enterprise and that room transforms into a place where you can interact with characters and people. I think that form of personalised entertainment in situ is going to happen before too long. Already a lot of the theme parks in America are starting to develop that technology. I don't believe we'll walk around with devices strapped to our heads. I think we'll walk in rooms where we'll be able to talk to things that look very much and sound very much like humans. You've referenced how each platform is now quite generationally specific, but also there's, in many respects, the conversation around the creator economy is so driven by the young. They do play a disruptive role in culture, quite rightly. But the financials would suggest the best bet is chasing the boomers and Gen X. The big budget streamers are going after boomers. Hollywood is now driven by the boomer buck. To what extent do you think the creative economy is wrongly fixated on young people and needs to be more expansive in how it understands its audience? The creative economy is entirely nebulous. It's not actually a thing. It's just a collective term for people who make their money from sharing digital content. So I don't think there's any point of view or starting point for the creator economy because there isn't really an economy. There's no overlord customer saying, I want this and I don't want that. It's a collection of absolute mess that has somehow found roots to success in odd ways. It's a mess. It's a total mess. This is one of the reasons why it's quite attractive to people because nobody tells you if you can or can't put a video up on YouTube. It's kind of very meritocratic in a way. If you put up a hundred rubbish videos that nobody cares about, you won't earn a penny and no one will watch them. If you put up something that people are genuinely interested in, you're going to make some money and build an audience. So that's the attractiveness of it. I don't think it's specifically about young people. I just think that young people have been more keen to embrace it. Because it's by definition, if nobody ever uploaded a video to YouTube, there would be zero videos on it. 
I believe that it seems to be a younger space because younger people are the ones that have engaged with it. Also, young people have got a lot of time to watch their phones. That's what the algorithm loves, is viewers that stay on for hours and hours. The algorithm dictates success in the creator economy. That's it. What about genius and knowledge? Do you know, I've made the case that we should not allow that in the UK, that we should have public service broadcasting on YouTube and other platforms, and that there should be kind of a mandated amount of content highly prominent on those platforms to make sure that the content that people watch is likely to include a lot of content that's been deliberately created by professionals to be in the public interest and the public good. It was controversial when the BBC was founded to create a public broadcasting channel, radio channel as it was then. It has gone well, but we're living in a very different age where the whole notion, albeit slightly warped, of the internet being free in terms of not regulated and not state-instructed, people would find that really uncomfortable, but maybe they wouldn't. I would say there's a real opportunity to ensure a mix of content exists on these platforms that isn't just entirely algorithmic-led, because at the end of the day, most of those platforms don't care about the outcomes for their viewers other than those viewers interacting a lot with their platform. So they don't have the best interests of people at heart. Bear in mind, ITV, Channel 5, the other terrestrial broadcasters all have to follow those Ofcom guidelines. We've got a whole that could be filled in part by making public service content prominent on those platforms. I don't mean shove it down people's throats. I just mean do what they do in a number of other countries, which is put quotas in there. What happens when presidential election coming up, for example, we could have a scenario where a video AI generated of, say, Biden falling over or slurring his words can swing the election in the way that Nixon sweating on camera when he was interviewed in the 60s did. Because people believe what they see when they view a moving image, perhaps less so Gen Z than boomers, but the desire to believe what they see and think it true. This is really challenging to the central tenets of democracy. The 2016 election result in America was massively influenced by Facebook. But it wasn't Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg, who decided who he wanted to win the election and then got behind. It's the platform's fault for not doing enough about it at that time. But actually, they weren't particularly the instigators of that bad action. They had a mutual benefit from the bad action, potentially, you could argue. The challenge of deep fakes and the like is absolutely right. It affects older people 100 times more than it affects younger people because younger people are born now with a native distrust of anything. They don't share things because they worry they're fake. The difference is you've got older people who've grown up with 50, 60 years of public service broadcasting. It's all they have known. So they've been able to have an entire trust basis of anything they see on a screen or read on paper is absolutely spot on going to be right. They are the ones that are completely flawed by anything they see. And that's why the internet crime of fraud and scams has become so huge in the UK. It's overtaken burglary as the biggest crime in the UK. At the end of the day, I feel very sadly that there will be some content that has a significant impact on the US election. Luckily, because there's no single source of content anymore, the only way that can happen is if it's done on an industrial scale and that there are millions of different bits of content. With AI, that's a lot more potentially doable. But I think it'll probably be the following election cycle where that will become industrialized. I think this one, we're in a bit of a better shape. Social platforms have got far more content moderation in place than they've ever had before. I think this will probably be less bad for all of that. I think the following one is when we're going to have the big AI problems. And having heard from the founder of OpenAI last week, I'm 
less confident now that guardrails are in place than I was previously. The arms race to have the big overarching AI tool in the world is very real. AI was invented 60 years ago and computers have been learning in inverted commas for the last 60 years how to do things for us. So when you go into Google Maps and you say, take me to Aberdeen, and within 10 seconds, it's shown you a route and shown you all the traffic on the route, that's AI that figures out the way you should go because it's learned from doing that a billion zillion times before what the probably best route for you is. Open AI, the whole point of it is that it goes out there and sucks everything it can into itself to learn everything. It's kind of like a, I'm going to be the god of AI and have every little bit of anything that's ever been on the internet, learn all of it and become the high and mighty overlord kind of approach, which is entirely dangerous because as we know, there's no verification of the internet. Pretty much it learns everything it wants to. And then you've got these teams of people who are desperately at these places trying to stop it being as evil as the evil quotes on Facebook or as nasty as the scammers who are taking over all the old grannies. The approach seems to be just go for it anyway and tidy up behind yourself. I would have hoped we'd have learned from some of the challenges previously in taking an approach of smash things up along the way and then clean them up afterwards as long as you come out the winner. And what's interesting is when you look at Google's AI, which is called Bard, it's far more boring than OpenAI, which is the one that is just going and doing whatever it wants. I was talking to someone about Google Bard and she was experimenting with it. It was her friend's 40th birthday and she asked Bard to compose a poem about her friend on her 40th birthday. And Bard presumed that a woman who was 40 and single was divorced. It's terribly flawed. And the truth is there are so many variables in the human experience that you can't train an AI to understand nuance, to understand what's socially acceptable and what isn't. Just can't do it. And I think that there are a lot of engineers who feel very worried about what's going to happen next because it's pretty obvious to anyone who knows what they're talking about in Silicon Valley that they've let this cat out the bag too early and that it's going to cause some real problems. I think the shame of that is that AI in those trained environments is going to become a brilliant tool. I saw a demo of Khan Academy's new maths tutor, which is called Khan Nego, which just looks fantastic, designed specifically to tutor children in maths. And I wish that we were using AI for specific use cases like that and developing it out brilliantly from a place of understanding. Trained AI is a brilliant benefit to the world. Open AI, where you just let it do whatever it wants, is a mess. Sam, thank you so much. I've learned loads, but also I love the idea of creating my own AI bot. Thank you so much for listening to It's All Relative. You can also connect with me on LinkedIn, Twitter, TikTok and Instagram at Eliza Philby. And why not subscribe to my weekly newsletter to hear more from me about how we are changing as consumers, workers and as citizens. Oh, and do rate us on Apple Reviews. It helps me keep this podcast going.